0: This is the Roundstable.
1: Welcome back, Roundstable listeners. This is John Frelick, one of your co-hosts. Today, I'm joined by a very special guest. Dr. Vreni Carette. is the section head of the Maternal Fetal Medicine Program in the Department of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Calgary. She's also a clinical assistant professor at the University of Calgary Cummings School of Medicine. She's been very active in initiatives related to COVID and pregnancy here in Alberta. And today she joins me to discuss what we know and what we don't know about COVID and pregnancy. Dr. Kret, thank you so much for being on the show.
0: Thanks very much for having me, John. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Um, So first off, I thought it might be useful to remind listeners about some of the unique aspects of pregnancy physiology, especially when it comes to the respiratory system. What are some of the usual changes?
0: Sure. So some of the usual changes that you can see anatomically are as the pregnancy advances, the diaphragm is pushed upwards, the rib cage is expanded, and that really is just related to the uterus growing with a fetus growing inside. We also most significantly see an increased respiratory rate, total lung capacity is reduced because of the changes in pregnancy. And of course, there's also increasing demands in terms of the total body oxygen demands. You're also certainly seeing increased oxygen consumption during labor. And related to all of that is in pregnancy, the total blood volume increases by about 50% in anticipation of the body losing blood at the time of delivery. And so all of that adds to the cardiorespiratory changes that we see in a normal pregnancy.
1: Okay, interesting. So a lot of different things happening. Um, When it comes to what we know among the general population, you know, those at higher risk of developing the infection tend to be older patients or those with certain comorbidities. And are pregnant patients at increased risk of COVID-19 and and maybe a follow-up, are there any unique risk factors when it comes to pregnancy and infection risk?
0: Yeah, so it's a really good question. The first part of that question, I think we're just trying to understand in terms of what's the risk of acquisition for a pregnant woman compared to a non-pregnant woman when it comes to COVID. Certainly, we are more concerned about women who are pregnant with comorbidities, such as gestational hypertension, preeclampsia, diabetes, obesity, and pregnancy. The data still is unclear, though, whether or not in general general, a pregnant woman is more likely to acquire COVID. Having said that, we know that pregnancy does make women more susceptible to infection in general. You know, some of the reasons for that are things like uh, the altered immune state of pregnancy. Our general immunity would be altered in order for the body not to recognize the fetus as a foreign object. Um, and so that certainly plays into your susceptibility to have an infection. All of the respiratory changes are concerning. There are vascular and hemodynamic changes that can leave a pregnant woman more prone to infection, and also just the higher metabolic demands of growing um, a new human inside you. So we have to keep all of those things in mind when we think about women and the risks of acquiring an infection like COVID. Whenever we think about pregnancy, we think about the maternal risks, but we also have to think about the fetal risks. Um, A fetus is also at higher risk of infection if there's a maternal infection because they have a limited immune response in the fetal state. And then we also pay particular attention to the first trimester during the time of organogenesis because those are developing organs and the potential to cause a teratogenic effect is, you know, not something we've seen so far specifically to COVID, but certainly a real risk with other infections in pregnancy.
1: Okay. And maybe along those lines, I remember months ago, there were case reports looking at risk of transmission to the fetus. Um, do we have a better understanding around, is there a risk of transmission to the fetus? Do pregnant patients with COVID-19, do they require closer monitoring in the antipartum period, for example?
0: Yes. So the risk of transmission to the fetus is a perfect example of how our understanding and knowledge has changed from the spring in the first wave when our advice to women and the medical community was, there was no indication of vertical transmission. And I think with more cases, with a better understanding, we are now saying that it is rare. In other words, there are case reports that suggest vertical transmission or congenital infection. And those are cases that are coming out of centers that have done really good sampling at the appropriate time that can really perhaps not 100% prove that there's vertical uh, transmission, but certainly would suggest that there is vertical transmission. So things like looking at the fetal surfaces of the placenta immediately at C-section delivery and having a positive swab, cord samples, cord blood, maternal samples, neonatal nasopharyngeal swabs. Having all of those samples and all of them being positive taken immediately after delivery would lead us to believe that those are true cases of transmission. Having said that, it is at this point limited to just case reports, and I can also say that in all of those instances, thankfully, those infants have done well afterwards. So if we are counselling our patients and they're asking that question, I would say to my patient, yes, it's possible, it is rare, and the outcomes that we are seeing in those very rare cases of transmission are good with good infant follow-up
1: yeah okay well that's really good to know so rare but also in the very rare instant it happens good outcomes for fetus that's good well for baby rather (laughs) now for the non-pregnant patient uh, you know there are typical symptoms of covid be it cough breathing trouble fever shortness of breath runny nose are there any unique aspects to the clinical presentation of covid infection in pregnant patients
0: you know, looking at our Alberta-based data, as well as some of the amalgamated Canadian national data, we're tracking the symptoms of women in pregnancy, and they appear to be the same as those in the non-pregnant general population with Cough, fever, headache, sore throat being some of the most common symptoms. There is a small percentage of the pregnant population that are asymptomatic, but that does seem to be limited to a much smaller group. Some of the other more nonspecific symptoms are a little harder to tease out between what could be COVID-related and what might be pregnancy-related. So loss of appetite, nausea, vomiting, uh, some element of shortness of breath even in the third trimester is not that uncommon. Common for women in pregnancy, certainly not at rest, but with activity, climbing a flight of stairs. So we find that some of the more measurable symptoms, such as a cough and fever, certainly point us in the direction of COVID, whereas some of the other ones we have to spend a bit more time taking a thorough history and perhaps following someone and doing testing to determine if it is a COVID symptom or a pregnancy related symptom.
1: Fair. Yeah, I imagine that can be difficult at times to tease those things out. Now, I think it was a few days ago, there might have been a report out of UBC, a national surveillance project, showing a signal for higher rates of hospitalization, I think also ICU admissions among pregnant patients with COVID-19. Are we seeing differences in sort of the disease course or the complications compared to other more common infections like, you know, bacterial pneumonia or good old influenza?
0: Yes, we did just release uh, our first interim uh, analysis of Canadian data. At this time, it only included three provinces, and it was up to and including September 30th, so all cases from March when we started collecting data until the end of September. This is a national surveillance program and registry for all COVID-infected pregnancies across the country. We do have representation, but not data yet, from every province and territory in the country. So as this data starts to come in, we're getting a better and better idea of uh, COVID and pregnancy in the Canadian context. What we've seen with that first initial draw of data is that there are increased rates of hospitalization when we look at pregnant women with COVID compared to non-pregnant women of the same age group. Those numbers right now are looking at about an 11% rate of hospitalization for pregnant women with COVID versus 1.7% for a non-pregnant age-matched population. And we're seeing the similar thing with the ICU admissions. So about a two to three percent Rate of ICU admission compared to a 0.3% ICU admission rate in uh, women who are pregnant and non pregnant in the reproductive age category. So, although this is early data, you know, and so we have to be careful uh, when we interpret that data, but there are certainly signals that we're looking at. I will say that the absolute risk of severe illness is still low, but when women do have severe illness compared to non-pregnant women, there are increased risks. The last thing to say about that is just that this is similar to what has most recently been reported in the U.S. with the latest report out from the CDC. And then there's a large European registry, the Preg study, and they are seeing similar findings as well in terms of increased risk of hospitalization and ICU admission.
1: Wow, that's a great initiative that you guys were able to kind of put all that Canadian data together. Um, I'd like to change gears a little bit and talk a bit about the management of COVID infection in pregnancy. Uh, Certainly the evidence that we have supports dexamethasone uh, in patients requiring oxygen or intubated in the ICU. Uh, Do we know if there are any differences in management of COVID-19 in a pregnant patient who does require admission to hospital?
0: So we would apply the same uh, principles for treatment in the pregnant patient. Uh, dexamethasone is safe to use in pregnancy. We routinely use betamethasone for fetal lung maturation in a pregnant woman who has a risk of imminent delivery before 34 weeks. Um, the alternate to that, if betamethasone is not available, would be dexamethasone. So it is something we have experience with in pregnancy. We feel safe providing it to our patients. Um, and so it is something that has come on board for the non-pregnant or pregnant patient. In terms of sort of disease course and management, we're seeing very similar things to the adult population where women may have mild to moderate disease for the first few days. And then again, sort of around the days five to seven, we can see an acute deterioration with the need for either respiratory support with oxygen or even ventilation. And we have had some women who have required ventilation. The difference, of course, is that if she is in the third trimester of pregnancy and she has this big space occupying... Uh, uterus. Um, I was going to say space-occupying lesion, but I suppose that's not really fair. Um, (laughs) um, You know, this is where the ethical decisions become challenging around delivery and is it best to do an emergency C-section so that there is more space and more lung capacity and ability for us to treat the woman who requires oxygen support or even uh, intubation? So those are some of the things that are unique to pregnancy We always want to have a mother who is awake, aware, and able to make those decisions. But of course, sometimes we're not able to do that and most certainly involve family in those decisions.
1: Yeah, fair. And speaking maybe a bit more about uh, if there are differences in how delivery is managed, you know, is there a difference in sort of even PPE usage if you're doing a section in a COVID positive patient? Uh, You know, is it N95s or are there differences in how deliveries are done in the COVID era?
0: Yes, certainly. So we have, I would say, learned by learning from our mistakes. So we have had exposures and infection in healthcare staff on labour and delivery as the COVID pandemic has sort of stretched on. And from that, we have learned that it's not just um, a mask, a gown and gloves that we might normally wear for delivery. We need to make sure we have goggles on as well. Uh, there was great debate around whether or not N95 masks were required for delivery or not. If there's a woman who is COVID positive and she is laboring, should she be wearing a mask? And you can imagine that if you're having a vaginal delivery, you're in the second stage of labor, you're pushing to try to do that with a mask on is really, really difficult. And so I think... In general, what we have said is that everybody else in the room will protect themselves with full PPE so that we can allow the laboring woman to do that in whatever fashion is best for her, should she be at risk of, of having COVID in terms of a confirmed or suspected case. In terms of the OR, um, what we're trying to do is keep as many people out of the OR if there is an aerosol generating procedure that's taking place. Of course, sometimes when you're doing a stat section, there's a you know, rapid drop in the heart rate. You're doing a stat GA. We don't have the opportunity to do that. So in those scenarios, much better to have additional protection such as an N95 mask.
1: Okay, great. Maybe another question along the management lines, you know, the evidence around the role for prone positioning is really not clear yet. A lot of studies are ongoing, but are there any specific contraindications to prone positioning in a pregnant patient or in a postpartum patient?
0: You know, it was a really good question and I'm not sure that I could find anything specific to that. In general, the position that is the most concerning is a woman who is supine, especially as she gets on in the pregnancy, the weight of the uterus can compress the IVC, causing some concern about fetal oxygenation. And so that's why typically we would recommend lateral decubitus or even just having a woman wedged. Those are the preferred positions, I suspect that as long as there was a bed cutout, which I don't know that that would be readily available to accommodate the gravid uterus, then you could have her positioned in a prone position. It would certainly make it much more difficult to do fetal monitoring, which is an important component. If you've got a pregnant woman who's admitted to hospital, we need to ensure that we don't forget to do that daily uh, or even twice daily monitoring, depending on the fetal situation. So, Although I don't know that it's contraindicated, I think it would present some challenges.
1: Yeah, fair. Okay. Um, you know, for someone like myself as an internist or a hospitalist who might be helping with co-management of an admitted pregnant patient, what are some of the things to look out for that might indicate a pregnant patient is getting sicker and you need to consider higher level of care like ICU? You know, I know you mentioned kind of that normally there are higher resp rates as an example in pregnancy. Um, are there any kind of signal that you sort of look for to say, yeah, something is changing. I need to act.
0: I think in these scenarios, it's really good to consider both the mother and the fetus, because the fetus often can be the one that first signals us that there is a concern. So in terms of an undiagnosed maternal fever, often we are cued to check the maternal temperature because we see an unexplained fetal tachycardia. You know, also going back to the fetus, things like decreased fetal movement. There were some case reports out of Switzerland where the mother came in with decreased fetal movement. And again, it was, that was a sign that there was a worsening status so as an internist or a hospitalist, I would say don't forget about the whole fetal component of the pregnancy and using that as a way to also monitor maternal status. I would say that our parameters around oxygenation, knowing that mom has to be well oxygenated in order for that to sustain the fetus, we have a much lower threshold to supplement with oxygen because a prolonged hypoxia in the mother could have permanent hypoxemic damage to a fetus. Um, so, you know, there was a lot of debate at the national level looking at the hospitalization, ICU, and oxygen support data and saying, is this always going to look higher? Because we have a bias towards admitting women to hospital and admitting them to the ICU when they're pregnant earlier because we're more worried about them um, simply because they're pregnant and and you know what there may be some truth to that but i think at the same time the maternal status has such a profound impact on the physiology of the fetus that we do have to be more careful
1: fair You know, this pandemic has obviously put a lot of strain on everyone's mental health. But are you seeing higher rates of depression during pregnancy or in the postpartum period amongst your patients?
0: I'm so glad that you asked this question, John, because yes, the mental health concerns, the anxiety of women who are pregnant are much, much higher. You know, and in some ways it doesn't really come as a surprise because we know that we're seeing that in the general population. You hear about it. In the media. But I will say that our um, obstetrical surveillance team, um, our nurses are reaching out to women when they contact them and screen the women. We are most definitely seeing higher rates of anxiety, depression. There is a large study that uh, is run out of the Alberta Children's Hospital where it was an online survey for women around anxiety and pregnancy related to COVID. The last time I spoke with them, they had over. 8,000 people across the country respond and the levels of anxiety are so much higher than what was expected. We are seeing those high levels of anxiety regardless of whether women are infected or not and the level of anxiety doesn't change with severity of illness either And you know, they're, they're anxious about getting COVID and this potential unknown effect on their fetus. They're anxious about what's my labor and delivery going to look like, you know. Will there ever be a time when my husband or partner won't be able to come in to labor? They can't have siblings, grandparents, extended family come and visit. If a babe's in the NICU delivered prematurely, you know, it's just the immediate parents that can come visit. And then I would say the risk of postpartum depression afterwards is also very real because the support systems that women naturally put in place may not be available to them. So having family come from another province, from overseas, from another city, for many women, that isn't a possibility because of the restrictions that we have. So... I would say we have been very careful to make sure that we check in with our patients, even if we're not doing in-person prenatal visits, we're doing virtual or phone visits, always checking to make sure that we are supporting them as best we can and um, checking in on their mental health because this is having huge effects.
1: Yeah, I can only imagine how difficult it must be to maybe not have the pregnancy you're expecting. You know, you can't show off baby. You can't get the supports you normally would when you're supposed to isolate all the time. That's really challenging. The internet has got a lot of bad information, but are there any good resources that you would recommend for your patients to look online for, you know, know, help to answer these questions and to kind of ease their worries as best as possible?
0: Sure, there are a lot of really great resources, as always going to the larger national organizations that represent, present what I would say would be the most scientifically rigorous information that we have. So in Canada, we have the Society of Obstetrics and Gynecology, SOGC. We also pay close attention to what we see out of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, uh, ACOG for short, um, and then the Royal College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which are our colleagues in the UK. All of those sites have have good information. There are resources for practitioners and for patients. And then the final place that I would direct people is the International Society of Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynecology. They're an international group that you know, often takes guidance from uh, many guidelines and experts in the obstetrics field around the world. They also, in particular for that website, they have patient resources in multiple different languages. So if you have patients that may not have English as a first language, you could print off or direct them. And there's many, many different COVID uh, translated resources in many languages. So that's another really good site.
1: Oh, that's great. And what we'll do is maybe we'll try and have that information on our website too. So that's, available to to our listeners uh, be it patients or physicians uh, to know where to look you know i think of course the big news these days when it comes to covid is vaccination so there are now you know at least a couple of different vaccines that look to be pretty effective at preventing this disease but my understanding is that you know pregnant patients had been excluded from the trials Uh, how are you counseling your patients around the role for vaccination in pregnancy Um, or even i guess maybe in those who are nursing like what do we Know when I guess it hasn't really been studied
0: yes so it's a really timely question there's been a lot of discussion a lot of debate around how to advise our patients in terms of vaccination and pregnancy so the two vaccines that we have are Pfizer and moderna we know that in the Pfizer, Well, sorry. Let me back up to say that there have been no vaccine trials that have included pregnant women. There are some preliminary discussions around some vaccine trials in specifically in the pregnant population starting in the summer of 2021. Of course, it would take time for those trials to be completed and the data to come out. And so when we look at the vaccines specifically, Pfizer did report 23 pregnancies in their vaccine trials. These were unintended pregnancies. As far as I understand, it was a relatively equal distribution between those in the placebo arm and those in the vaccine arm, so 12 on one and 11 in the other. Neither group has shown any abnormalities, specifically no teratogenic effects at this time. We don't have much detail, though, so we don't know at what gestation they were, when they received the vaccine, or even if it was preconception. Um, those women may not have even delivered yet, so I think there's still lots of information that, or, well, 23 patients is not a lot, but there's some information still to come. In terms of the Moderna vaccine, they have released their animal data, or DART data, and this, again, is reassuring in that it is not showing a signal for teratogenicity. So when we look at what the consensus statements are, Our national body, the SOGC, their consensus statement is that for individuals who are at high risk of infection and or morbidity from COVID-19, it is the SOGC's position that the documented risk of not getting the COVID-19 vaccine outweighs the theorized and undescribed risk of being vaccinated during pregnancy or while breastfeeding and vaccination should be offered. So, we have to individualize. We need to speak to every patient. We need to understand the environment in which they live in, the environment in which they work in. Certainly, when you look at some of the isolated communities, let's say in Manitoba, where the rates of infection are one in three or one in four, that may be an area where a woman certainly has a higher risk of having COVID-19 infection with potential complications versus, you know, unknown new vaccine that doesn't seem to be causing any issues. And we, you know, again, we have to be careful with that. With everything, it's a new drug. mRNA vaccinations are a new vaccination. We've never used them in humans before. So yes, there are lots of questions, but there also have not been any abnormal adverse outcomes in pregnant women. So our advice to women is to consider it, to have a conversation with their primary care provider. And if they feel it's the right choice for them, we would recommend that they go ahead with vaccination. Similarly, with breastfeeding, we are recommending that if a woman is breastfeeding and wishes to have the vaccine, that she go ahead and do that. The benefits of breastfeeding, again, particularly in resource poor areas, are so important that we wouldn't want women to stop breastfeeding in order to get a vaccine or, in fact, to put off vaccination while they're breastfeeding. Some women breastfeed for a year, for two years. It's a very long time. Some of the other things that we are counseling our pregnant patients in terms of vaccine is that should a woman receive a vaccination and then realize that she was pregnant, we would not recommend termination of pregnancy because she's received the vaccination. So again, you know, to be really clear, we have no information that would tell us that that would put the fetus at risk of teratogenicity. And then the last thing that we're telling women is if you are contemplating pregnancy and the vaccine is available to you, we would recommend that you complete the two courses of the vaccine prior to getting pregnant because one of the things that's still a little controversial is if a woman has had one dose of the vaccine and then gets pregnant, should we recommend she get the second dose or do we tell her to wait until after the pregnancy? So I would just say um, for those women who are planning their conception to keep that in mind as well.
1: Okay, that's very good information. Well, this has been a really terrific conversation. Um, Those were all of the questions that I had. I don't know if there's anything that you'd like to just say before we finish things up, but anything else that you think we we should cover?
0: (laughs) The only other thing that I will add in terms of outcomes that we are watching closely is there does appear to be a slightly higher rate of preterm birth. And again, it's raw data. It's early on. Our approach to this and understanding of it may change as more data comes, but when we look at Canadian data and, again, compare that to American and European data, the rates of preterm birth are about 12 to 15%. Our baseline rate of preterm birth is 8% in Canada. So it is higher. We're not sure yet what the cause of that is, but it's something that we're following closely. And I guess in general with COVID, my final thoughts would just be that the information is constantly changing. The number of publications from March uh, until today when I, you know, or yesterday evening when I was preparing for a Grand Rounds presentation, it's it's incredible the number of publications that are out there. And we keep learning. And with that, we know that what I say today may not be correct tomorrow and that we probably need to be OK with some degree of uncertainty and continue to do our very best to monitor outcomes and have individual frank conversations with our pregnant patients so that we can ensure the best possible care for them
1: that's a really great point well you know i think maybe on that why don't we wrap things up dr karet thank you so much for being on the show i really appreciate uh, all of the, all of this information thank you so much my pleasure the rounds table is hosted online at healthy Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table. Special thanks to our audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores. Also thanks to founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma, and Kieran Quinn, the previous director. We'd also like to give a big thanks to Seema Marwaha, the editor-in-chief at Healthy Debate, for all of the support.